you guys want to turn to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're continuing going through the book of Mark. And when I was outlining this, this chapter and I got some inspiration from, from a, 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 a book that I'm reading and I'm totally going blank on it. Oh my gosh, I got to give uh, Warren Wearsby. Uh, he has uh, some incredible commentaries. Uh, I kind of use that as a little bit of inspiration for the outline. But um, he called out that there's like a lot of paradoxes that, that manifest in Mark chapter 10. Now, I took some liberty to actually modify um, what he had originally laid out. I, I put a couple more in there. But you can see those in your handout. And I think uh, part of the reason why I asked that question just about, like, are there things you had to unlearn as an adult is that um, as we grow up, I think we start to realize that um, there are some things that we have to unlearn or that we didn't really understand. Um, and, and when we think about God and his, his wisdom, right, um, what we see in the Gospels is that God's often on a completely different para- paradigm than us. And that his ways are not our ways. And that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So we often need a reframing on things. And a paradox, if, if you're not familiar with the word paradox, the, the definition of this, and it's not in your notes, but you could always Google it. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to well be founded or true. Okay. So here's a couple of examples of paradoxes that maybe you've heard, or maybe you need to think about a little bit. One is uh, youth is wasted on the young. Youth is wasted on the young. What do you, what do you think that means? Like, why would somebody say that youth is wasted on the young? How many of you have thought back on your youth and been, man, if I knew what I knew, I would do, I would do things way differently. I know for me, going through high school, I would have taken a jazz class. I would have been a jazz band. Those kids were so nerdy. But now that I'm older and I appreciate music more and, and just what was being offered in, in high school, dude, I, that would have been something I could still use to this day, right? But instead, I over-indexed in study hall and blow-off classes, right? Here's another one. Less is more. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that phrase before? Less is more? So, uh, you know, and that can be anything from uh, just resources and possessions and the, the wealth that we bring, like, you know, the, the, the clutter in our homes, kind of a, especially like coming out of the holidays and having kids. It's like so many toys or, you know, there's like, and, and then it's like, oh my gosh, less is more. Like, we're, we're the, our possessions are possessing us, right? Uh, and so th- there's another paradox for you. Just one more. Uh, the only constant is change. Have you ever heard that one? So things are, or the only rule is that there are no rules. Uh, no. So those are a couple. And in some ways, engaging with paradoxes is a recognition that life is not superficial and God's wisdom requires careful attention. And as we mature in Christ, we must break free from the conventions of human wisdom 
and embrace God's perspective. And so what we're going to see is a bunch of different situations in Mark chapter 10 where um, people are intersecting with Jesus and they have a perspective um, and God gives them a new perspective that almost seems contradictory to, to how they were thinking about things. So let's start with a word of prayer before we get into the text. Lord, we need your eyes. We need spiritual eyes. And, and without your spirit, um, we are blind, deaf, and dumb to what, how you see things and how you want us to, to view the world. And so I just ask for your help as we go through this text. And, and thank you so much for j- just the examples in Mark chapter 10. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So you'll see that outline of uh, some of the paradoxes that are coming out of this. So uh, the two, two shall be one. So Jesus talks a little bit about adultery and marriage. And then uh, talks about, uh, well, about children being able to enter into the kingdom of God, that you got to receive the kingdom of God as a, as a, as a child. So adults shall be as children. Um, the hopeless shall be saved. So we'll look into that one a little bit. The first shall be last. And so uh, even as Jesus is teaching his disciples and they're actually following him, uh, Jesus starts pushing on their paradigm of what it means to be a leader um, and what it means to be rewarded. The dead shall rise. So uh, this is actually a a passage in scripture where Jesus prophesies about his death, burial, and resurrection. And he is the first uh, of many you know, that will be found in Christ that, that shall rise from the dead. Leaders shall be servants and the blind shall see. So you can use this, you know, if you ever go back as an outline for, for the, these different stories and engagements with Jesus, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach and not necessarily marinate in the paradoxes themselves, but more in the people that are engaging in the paradoxes and what's going on with them. So, if you can turn to verse 1, Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says this, And he arose from thence, so that's Jesus, and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. So basically, Jesus is always teaching, and so here he is again, teaching again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And notice, tempting him. So that should be like an indicator that their motives are completely off. They're not coming into this conversation to learn. Um, You know, Mary had a heart of learning. Like, Lord, how could this be? Like, how can this be? It wasn't a question of disbelief. She's like genuinely wanting to know, like, how could I be pregnant? This is not the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're asking a question to Jesus, but what are they doing? They're trying to tempt him. And, you know, once you have it, that there's issues in life, there's uh, things that are complex and seem uh, like they have a lot of ambiguity. And people like to use those as a defense to try to trip up Christians or to try to trip up uh, God and disprove him. You know, it's kind of like, like asking that question, like, well, like, is God so powerful that he can, like, create a rock that, like, he can't, like, move because it's so big? 
you know, like, oh, that's deep. That's like a paradox, right? <laughs> and it's like, no, I'm sorry, man. Like, yes, he can make a rock that is so big he can't move it. And that's called your heart. And it's got a free will. And he's made that. And he's given you that free will. And you've anchored it in nothing. And he will not push it up the hill um, until you humble yourself. Okay? So it's like the Pharisees are here and they're tempting him. Verse three, and he answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus said unto them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them feel male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Okay. So just notice that, I mean, this like really stood out to me that uh, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept in verse five. He's saying this. It's, it's almost like God is tolerating their desire to go wayward and making, I, I wrestle with the word provision because we're commanded in the New Testament to make no provision for the flesh. But you, here we see in scripture, God is actually in some ways allowing them to go down this path. And so this is the first point that we're going to look at is that your current path may be merely suffered by the Lord. Moses was suffering the, the children of Israel being wayward, okay? They had hard hearts, and he was, he was being long-suffering with them. And so don't assume that just because you're a believer and you're going down a path, that that necessarily means that God is blessing it, that God is putting you on that trajectory. It could be that he's merely suffering it because he's long-suffering, and that's not a place that we want to be. And so, you know, the first uh, check your heart is check your heart for hardness. Check your heart for hardness, okay? So God has a playbook, and we see that in verses 6 through 9, um, but we often go rogue. And in this case, it's about uh, getting, uh, giving a bill of divorcement, and we're not going to do a deep dive on marriage and, and divorcement here. And, and he also talks about adultery that um, you'll have to, you know, study that on your own or we, you know, we can talk about that after class if you have any questions about that. But um, Jesus references Genesis 2 in the Old Testament, and he starts talking about what did like this is what God intended from the beginning. Is that God, God made them male and female. And God brought them together as one. And this is what marriage is. And if you look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, we're not going to look at that like in detail. But if you ever want to reference that, that's where, the, that's where the Pharisees were asking the question. And um, as, a married, as a married man, uh, it was awesome to just read through that and get some context. And even just see um, that right after that, uh, there was a commandment that if you just get married, like 
take a year off from war. And it's like, well, why would, why would God say that? It's like God wants to build strong foundations in our marriages. And that takes investment and that takes focus. And, you know, as, as, a, as a married couple, uh, Allie and I have been married for 15 years. We still sometimes need to have that mentality of like, we need to take some time away from war. <laughs> Not war from each other. War from, you know, you know, just like being in the trenches of ministry and things like that. Sometimes we got to prioritize that. And sometimes um, we got to double down. Um, and sometimes, you know, we got to go to war and we got to recognize that there's, there's a time and place for everything. But we see examples of this desire to go wayward and God tolerating it. And this is just one example, but Israel asked for a king. God, in, in 1 Samuel, they were looking at their leadership and they were like, mm, man, those countries, those nations, those tribes around us, they all got kings and seems like a pretty good thing to have. And Samuel, the prophet at the time, was like grieved by this. He kind of took it personally. But God was like, they're not, like, they're not, rebelling against you. They're not turning their back on you. They're turning their back on me. And yet God still, he didn't abandon them in this, this path, but he actually gave them uh, two kings. First King Saul is a bad king to give an example of what not to do. And then a king after his own heart, David. And God used all of that for his glory. And so you know, I want, want to bring hope that if, if there's something that's coming to mind right now, as you're thinking about your life and you're like, okay, I'm on this trajectory. Did God put me on this trajectory or is he like tolerating it? Is he like, is he long suffering right now? But this isn't actually something God wants to put me on. Know that God hasn't abandoned you. God's still with you, um, but he might be asking you to humble yourself and to consider your ways, to consider a different way. And I love this passage, Psalm 95. We're going to look at this. It says this, okay? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if we will hear his voice... Sheep are really simple, like they're really simple. Um, and, and, and in fact, they're kind of uh, a mockery uh, to this world. And the Egyptians actually uh, despised shepherds. They were an abomination. Um, but God is often, he sees his children as sheep and he calls us to, to just a humble following of his voice. And then this is the warning in, Hebrew, or in Psalm 95. It says this, harden not your heart, as in the, the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And to whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. So just some things that we can learn from this passage for this call to bow down and worship before the Lord is, I mean, just the first one, be faithful to the ways of God. And, and the way to do that is first, you just got to know what God says. And that's, that's obviously reading the word. 
getting to know it and also obeying it. Um, it also talks about worshiping and bowing down, and that's a picture of humility. Be in fellowship and exhort one another daily. And when I, when I think about some of these, these attributes, it actually sounds a lot like the four goals of, of discipleship. Like be in the word, be in worship, be established in the church, have that fellowship, be engaged in ministry. So that's, that's just a look at the skeptic that has a hard heart and, and, and God's solution of how you soften that heart. And that starts with just bowing down before him. Now, the second one that we're going to look at, we're going to skip over um, that uh, the children, you got to be like a child uh, to enter into the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at the entitled, okay, the entitled. So many of you might be familiar with this passage, but this is the rich young ruler, okay? Mark 10, we're going to start in verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. You know, the list goes on and on. And the young man, the rich young ruler, and he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And I love the disciples' response to this, okay? So Jesus says, <laughs> um, Jesus said to them, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, okay? So their minds are kind of blown by this, all right? Just kind of like, they're grappling with this, right? But then Jesus takes it a step further. Jesus always has a great way of just kind of like taking it to the next level, right? Um, because adultery isn't just uh, doing the physical act. Adultery can even be just looking with, with your eyes and having lust in your heart. That can be adultery. So Jesus is always pushing what we think um, and, and really kind of shattering our self-righteousness. And, and then he says this, Jesus answered them and saith, uh, How hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, you don't have to, I'm just going to make this point, you don't have to be rich to trust in riches. You can actually be uh, very poor and be trusting in riches. And that's where you're, that's, that's where you're, you're finding your hope. Um, you can, you can be always thinking about money and how you feel like you don't have enough. So don't come to this passage and just like, oh, this is for the people that like got the big houses. You can be incredibly obsessed with money, no matter rich or poor. And Jesus is saying, 
how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then look at the disciples, how they respond to this. And they were astonished out of measure. So it's like, they're like, first they were astonished, but now they're like, like out of measure. You know, they're just like undone saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Do you see how their perspective got broadened? Because they were probably thinking about this rich young guy and everything that he represented. And yet Jesus is starting, like, is, is broadening their horizon to be like, no, this is like everybody. Like, you guys are all trusting in money. And they're astonished beyond measure, okay? And when we hear the words of God, that's where we land. Is that like astonished beyond measure? Verse 27, and Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible. It's impossible to be saved, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And you guys, just even yesterday, I had an opportunity um, to talk to a security guard. Um, there was, it was just me and the security guard. There was no reason why I shouldn't have, have at least asked if they knew Jesus. And I had 10 reasons why I needed to get going. And I, and I walked away sad and grieved, just like this guy. And, um, and that's often the case. And, and I'm just like, Lord, like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like, it, it was so selfish of me. It was nothing but self-preservation. The most loving thing I could have done for that person was just to ask them, do you know who Jesus is? Do you have a, a relationship with God? Do you need help with anything? Like, we have the, reach, like the, the resources of the kingdom at our fingertips, in our mouths, in our heart, and yet... I just, I walked away grieved like this guy. And sometimes I feel hopeless about my ability to evangelize. And when I read a passage like this, when Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So, you know, this does go back to the key point. Um, your possessions aren't necessarily a token of God's blessing, Okay. Your possessions aren't necessarily a token of God's blessing. And that is not the right. (laughs) That's not the right. That should say, check your heart for self-righteousness. Apologize about that, especially if you're writing in pen. Check your heart for self-righteousness. You know, there's, there's many things that I think we tag as blessing. Oh, this is the blessing of God in my life. Um, you know, like, I hit the jackpot with this job or whatever. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, um, are we walking away from the Lord grieved and, and with shame? Uh, our tail between our legs? Or are we actually, like, walking in the confidence of the Lord. And for this rich young ruler, he walked away um, probably shattered in some ways and probably hopeless. But we don't know the end of his story. And 
he didn't have the Holy Ghost in that moment. Um, but we also find out that uh, the disciples also didn't have the Holy Ghost. And there were so many things that they didn't get right um, until the Holy, the Holy Ghost dropped on them in Acts 2. So, um, you know, our self-righteousness, uh, it makes us blind to our true need for God. Okay. And this rich young ruler, I think what's interesting about him was, yes, he was rich, but where the conversation started out was his, he felt entitled to the kingdom of God. And he was just trying to figure out how do I like earn it? Like, how do I get there? And when Jesus brought up the 10 commandments, he's like, yeah, check, check, check. I've done all of those things. But like, what scripture says is that our, our, our fleshly righteousness is, is like filthy rags to the Lord. Or that um, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. And so you, you see that his heart was anchored in and, and found strength in itself. And that's why um, we need to check our heart for self-righteousness. And there's an example of this. Many of you guys know the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. And verse 14, it says this, And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Why? Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, and that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Um, so, Lord, I just asked, I asked for that in my own life, even now, Lord, and I asked for that, that um, the things that we find confidence in, uh, Lord, the, the things that... Um, we think are giving us sight and, 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 and boosting our lives, and yet um, they're actually spiritually blinding us, God, that you would remove those things. So um, what's the solution if you find yourself in this state of self-righteousness, you know, or if you feel like even just this loss and hopelessness, like you can't really follow God in the ways that you can? Well, the first one is, you know, for those that, you know, because the disciples were like, well, who then can be saved, right? I love this verse in John 1, and it says this, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, okay? So like, it doesn't matter who your dad is. It doesn't matter who your mom is. It doesn't matter if they believe in, in the Lord. God has no grandchildren. They weren't born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So this guy was asking, how can I earn eternal life? You can't muster up enough righteousness to be right with God in his holiness. Nor of the will of man. 
Nobody else can will it for you. Your relatives, you know, your friends, they can't want it enough to get you into heaven. It has to be your decision. But man, but it's of God and the power of God. And that power is he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to take God's wrath. And instead of us receiving the judgment and the penalty for our sins, Jesus took that upon himself and he arose from the dead and he conquered death. That power of God, that's available to everybody. So the disciples, though they were astonished beyond measure of who can be saved, it's anybody that just receives God's free gift. But also for the believer, um, you know, Allie and I, I, I was tempted to take some photos of our basement. You'll probably often hear me talking about our basement and just how it's accumulated riches and goods that are like the bane of my existence. Um, but do, like we have like we are. You know, if we're trying to sprint, that stuff is like anchoring us down. Um, if God had called us to go to another city right now. And, and, and be missionaries somewhere else. That would be a hindrance, you know? Um, and Acts 2, uh, verses 41 for 47, we're not going to have time to read it, but um, it's such a beautiful picture of the New Testament church in its infancy. And they're getting together daily in Scripture, and they're, uh, they're singing and edifying one another, they're eating meals together. It's such a beautiful picture of small group and Bible studies. And, and it says they have all things in common. And they were just selling what they had to take care of one another's needs. It's such a beautiful picture. And as I read that and just contrasted that to the rich young ruler, what, what really just stood out was like, man, just get on mission. Okay? It's not about the stuff. You, I, I can even obsess and idol, idolize being a minimalist. That's not the solution. The solution is let's get in stride with God and let's just start walking with him. And that stuff, it'll take care of itself. The Lord will take care of itself. It's a giant. God will slay it. Okay. All right. And the, ra- the last one is um, the ransom. Actually, that's not the last one. The ransom, that's Jesus Christ. Okay. And I I alluded to this earlier, but Jesus um, actually uh, foretells his death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem. He knows it's coming, and he's actually leading the charge. He's like walking in front of the disciples, and they're kind of like freaking out. Because, you know, that's like dangerous territory. So I'm just going to summarize the last one, the opportunist. But... um, Right after Jesus says he's going to be like persecuted and, and done away with and, and, and murdered and then rise again, like right after that, his, uh, two of his disciples, James and John, have the audacity to be like, uh, Ma- Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever we shall desire. They're basically saying, hey, Jesus, Mr. Genie, can we like have a wish or two? And Jesus kind of humors them in some ways. What would ye that I should do for you? What would ye that I should do for you? And so then they're like, hey, can we sit with like your 
like, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand when you're in glory? And Jesus has this conversation with them. The other disciples get kind of ticked. They're like, what are they doing? You're bogarting Jesus. And so Jesus um, actually really starts to challenge their idea of what it means to rule and reign with the Lord. And he says this, and this is in verse 43, whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you shall be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for many. So the last point is your leadership position does not guarantee God's heart for his flock. And it's easy in a church like this um, to kind of identify like what the, what the, like the ways up, the ways forward. Uh, let's go to cost of discipleship. Let's get discipled. Okay, now we're going to disciple. Now I'm going to take some LFBI. Now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do that, you know? And it's like, are you doing these things because you love Jesus and you love the flock? Or are you doing these things to like get up the corporate ladder? Uh, this isn't a corporate ladder. Um, so check your heart for pride. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Is it out of love for God's sheep? Or is it out of self-exaltation? Um, and an incredible picture of a king that God put into power and anointed for ministry, um, but went horribly wrong was King Saul. And when uh, David was serving King Saul and kicking tail and, uh, and, and destroying the Philistines, Instead of uh, King Saul rejoicing at what God was doing through David and through his son, Jonathan, like you see his prideful heart, um, he basically just starts trying to kill those that um, are serving him. And, uh, you know, we got to check our heart for, for pride in that. And, and the, the example, um, the perfect example of servant leadership is Jesus, who is entitled to heaven and yet came down on earth as, as a mere baby and yet lived a perfect and spotless life and gave himself. So I want to just end that um, there were three other people that we didn't look at, um, the dependent, the follower, and the desperate. And I think blind Bartimaeus is probably one of the best examples of somebody that had nothing to offer to God, and he knew it. And the crowd was displeased with him because he was calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And yet God called him. Jesus called him. And whereas with the disciples, James and John, when Jesus was asking, you know, what would you like me to do for you? For you? Okay. What would, what would you, that I should do for you? Jesus asked a different question to blind Bartimaeus. He said, who, who cast off his dirty garment. Jesus said, what wilt that I should do unto thee? Unto thee. Not for you, but like unto thee. And so, um, you know, just the final thought is just that like, um, we often ask what God can do for us. But man, what we really need is a changed heart. And so let's be asking the Lord, God, <laughs> Can you soften my heart? Um, can you help me to find my righteousness and my need in you? Um, and, uh, 
and the Lord is faithful, he will meet you. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, help our, um, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief, God. And um, Lord, if there's anything in our lives that are displeasing to you, um, I pray that we would come to you like children um, to enter into your kingdom, to, um, to walk in the reality of your kingdom, um, that we would follow you, and that uh, we would um, just call out for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. After church? Okay. Awesome. I love you all. Call me Captain Obvious, but stay warm. Have a great day.